0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and the show airs every couple of weeks with hopefully insightful commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. You can also find my podcasts at uh, www.jimfeeney.com and subscribe to the show at Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and Buzzsprout. I've always found it a little strange how some folks resist acknowledging that the holidays – that expression that polite company uses to refer to this time of year, is really about a religious observance for about a third of all humans on earth. Nearly all of that segment is Christian, but for the nearly 18 million Jews, their religion was the precursor to Christianity, and their December celebration of Hanukkah deserves a seat at the holiday table. Still, for two-thirds of America who identify as Christians, this time of year is special. When a Christian says Merry Christmas, they communicate personal feelings, beliefs, and a value system. If the response is Merry Christmas back, those who exchange these wishes are probably kindred spirits. Awkward moments with some non-believers or people with other religious beliefs tend to be brief and manageable, so no harm, no foul. These Christian beliefs and values were essential ingredients to the founding and growth of America. These are just the facts despite the loud protests from a small minority. I think those people who can't receive a Merry Christmas with the joy in which it was intended are the same people who claim the virtue of diversity and inclusion. If diversity and inclusion were taken seriously and applied consistently, then those grinchy recipients of the Merry Christmas should be elated in the same way they are when, say, they see a gender-neutral bathroom. For those of you listening who are Christian, Please don't be offended with what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to diminish the joy and wonder of Christmas, which I love, but rather offer a secondary interpretation for your consideration. So here goes. The Christmas story itself is fundamentally a political act. The delivery of a Jewish Messiah who would rid their homeland of the the Roman scourge. For observant Christians, it was God incarnate to deliver a radical new playbook for people to live by. It starts with Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem for the purpose of registering for the census ordered by the all-powerful Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. Mary gave birth to a baby boy named Jesus, who was viewed as a threat to Herod, Rome's puppet Jewish king, who had heard rumors of a new Jewish Messiah being born. When the three wise men of the East came, who were following the Christmas star, Uh, By the way, did you see that beautiful Christmas star on December 21st? When these wise men came to Herod's court to inquire about the birth of a new Jewish king, Herod told them to return, to tell him where Jesus was so he could worship him. Sensing something fishy, the wise men left the country without alerting Herod. In a desperate move to stamp out any opposition, Herod ordered all the firstborn sons in the land to be killed in an effort to exterminate Jesus. When Mary and Joseph caught wind of this, they escaped to Egypt for several years until it was safe to return. That's some pretty intense political drama. What little we know about Jesus' life before his great ministry suggests a pretty boring life as a carpenter, dutiful son, and devout Jew. However, at about 30 years old, divine revelation transformed him into the Jesus we know from the Gospels. He courageously spoke truth to power to both the Roman occupiers and the Jewish priestly order of the Pharisees. Over his three-year ministry, Jesus' radical message of freedom, love, and tolerance became enough of a threat to the established order that it cost him his earthly life. As Christianity grew throughout the Roman Empire, it became such a threat that eventually persecution of Christians became government policy. Starting with Emperor Nero, who reigned from 54 AD to about 68 AD, and continuing for nearly 400 years, being exposed as a Christian would cost you your livelihood, social standing, and even your life. It's amazing that under all that government pressure, for such an extended period of time, Christianity grew rapidly. Its adherents didn't care about the cost of their faith because they were living for a higher goal. After a certain point, the persecution strengthened Christianity, and if the Romans admired one thing, it was strength. How does that old adage go, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? For those of you who have read my book, Locally Grown, The Art of Sustainable Government, you know that I'm suspicious of all forms of centralized power, and that includes religious power. And after 400 years of persecution after its creation, In another roughly 400 years subsuming the monarchies of Europe, the church became one of the most important power centers in the Western world. The centralized hierarchy of the church was led by the Pope, God's emissary on earth to us little people. But like all centralized power structures, no matter how divinely inspired, the church was run by flawed men, some of whom became addicted to power. Over time, the excesses and the hypocrisies of some of the ruling papal elite became so apparent that many Christians went into open revolt, and the faith experienced what we call in the cryptocurrency vernacular a hard fork. This came with the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Once again, the core Christian ethos of speaking truth to power was in full display as it was in Jesus' time, but this time it shined the light of truth on itself. This century-long splintering of Christianity gave birth to many subset doctrines, one of which was the group of separatist Puritans who founded our great nation. Do you see a pattern forming here? Christianity was born through an initial divine revelation on humanity's relationship with its creator. God's power is shown not through man-made power structures, but through the selfless acts of each individual raising up their brothers and sisters. Billions of little lights from within. It reminds me of that great spiritual. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And that brilliant divine thing about this revelation is that it is self-governing. It's distributed, decentralized power that when operating at scale has transformed the world. Christianity is self-correcting in that it rebels against the corruption that always emerges from human attempts to control it. It believes that the natural state of man is one of self-determination, where each person is free to make choices and live with the consequences of those choices. It also understands that all choices are not equal. Some choices are bad for us individually and for society at large. Now I'm not so arrogant to think that Christianity is the only road through which we can connect with our divine nature. My read of history is that all religious traditions put humankind in a subservient relationship to a single or group of gods. Christianity is what I was raised with. But Jesus' unique message was that the kingdom of God was attainable by all people, not just those of a certain race, gender, culture, or social standing. This message eventually becomes a threat to any human power structure that becomes corrupt and persecutes large groups of its own people. These power structures eventually collapse under the weight of their illegitimacy. The United States was built on these Judeo-Christian values of freedom and tolerance. And when institutions become corrupt, people of faith speak truth to power. The 19th century opposition to slavery started with the Quakers and then spread to church pulpits throughout the northern states. The modern civil rights icon, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., was the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. The abuse of children by the Catholic Church hierarchy was called out by individual lay Catholics who demanded justice. I think it's high time that people of all faiths stand up to the growing power of our federal government, for which the value of individual freedom is increasingly being viewed as a threat. We are starting to see seedlings of this resistance to centralized power emanating from the pulpit. Italian Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano recently decried the Great Reset, whose architects are, in his words, a global elite that wants to subdue all of humanity, imposing coercive measures to drastically limit individual freedoms and those of entire populations. American Cardinal Raymond Burke said the following in his sermon last week. There is this mysterious Wuhan virus, about whose nature and prevention the mass media daily give us conflicting information. What is clear, however, is that it has been used by certain forces, hostile to families and the freedom of nations to advance their agenda. These forces tell us now that we are the subjects of a so-called Great Reset, the new normal, which is dictated to us by their manipulation of citizens and nations through ignorance and fear. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, why should we be lectured by a Catholic church that protects child abusers? It's a good question, but I don't think of the comments from the two priests as representing Catholic church doctrine, but rather as declarations by an individual person of faith calling out a moral danger. In fact, these priests are voicing opinions that are in conflict with those of Pope Francis, the leader of the Catholic Church, who seems to share some of the goals of the Great Reset. No, these clergymen are speaking truth to power both outside and inside the Church. And this brings me to my larger point, that the Christian message is rooted in the words of Jesus, not the extrapolations of those words by an institution. We each are charged with taking personal action, and simple membership in an institution doesn't satisfy the obligation to personally get involved. We cannot outsource the hard work of doing the right thing to a government that tells us, don't try this at home, leave it to us experts to care for the poor, educate the children, and attend the elderly. Just vote for the right people, pay your taxes, and you can get back to your comfortable lives with your iPhones, Instagram, and government benefits. As if this somehow absolves any of us of personal responsibility to our fellow man. I don't think so. Contrary to how most people think of government coercion as the threat of violence, the 20th and now the 21st century is really the story of the main means of coercion of the population being that of comfort. Comfort. People are willing to exchange comfort and the illusion of security for individual freedom because becoming self-sustaining and speaking truth to power is hard work. It forces you to put skin in the game. Unfortunately, many people begin to think more about the risks of losing their comfort than the potential rewards of more liberty. In an essay for the Strategic Culture Foundation, author Tim Kirby describes it this way. This isn't to say that coercion or repression is a great evil. Without it, the complex societies that give us many benefits could not stand, and none of us wants to go live in a cave. And it is exactly this fact that very few people are willing to go live off the land that gives comfort so much power as a means of control. The overall global migration trend is for those with less to force themselves into countries with more, thus increasing their level of comfort. The migrants may not put it in those terms, but humans, like all of God's creatures, tend to take the easy way out. Raccoons prefer to attack the dumpster behind McDonald's for food, Because the dumpster can't fight back and it's always available. This probably has a horrible effect on the raccoon's health but it's the most comfortable option. They become very dependent on the dumpster and would probably shriek in terror if the fast-food restaurant was ever closed down, forcing them to go back to dealing with food that can actually run away. And this sort of situation is what has happened in the decadent West. As I try to write a fitting conclusion to this, my last article of this very crazy year, I realize that I may have twisted the meaning of Christmas a bit. I'm sorry for that. Christmas is a joyous time of year that calls us all to be grateful, be with family, and to think about others, even if that mostly means buying gifts at the mall or online. At least that's something. But there is no denying the fact that Jesus was a revolutionary who was unafraid to speak the truth. He had the ultimate skin in the game, and that is what all of us need to do more of. Get out of our comfort zones, put more skin in the game to help our fellow man, and keep the flame of liberty shining bright. And finally, I'd like to close out 2020 by giving you all a little Christmas gift. My version of the 12 Days of Christmas.
1: On the first day of Christmas China gave to us a brand new coronavirus On the second day of Christmas the Senate gave to us no more impeachment than a brand new coronavirus On the third day of Christmas the President gave to us three new judges no more impeachment than a brand new coronavirus On the fourth day Day of Christmas, Covid gave to me, a big declining market, three new judges no more impeachment than a brand new coronavirus. On the 5th day of Christmas, Facebook gave to me, five stupid memes, big declining market, three new judges and no more impeachment than a brand new coronavirus. On the seventh day of Christmas, California gave to us Four wildfires, five stupid memes Big declining market, three new judges, and no more impeachment And a brand new coronavirus On the seventh day of Christmas, Antifa gave to us Summer full of protests, more wildfires, five stupid memes Declining market and three judges, no more impeachment than a brand new coronavirus. On the eighth day of Christmas, Hollywood gave to you. Weinstein off to prison, summer full of protests, more wildfires, five stupid memes. Big declining market, three new judges, and no more impeachment than a brand new coronavirus. On the ninth day of Christmas, the army gave to me A dead soul, a mani, off to prison Summer full of protests, more wildfire, five stupid memes A big declining market, three new judges And no more impeachment than a brand new coronavirus On the tenth day of Christmas, the Fed reserved it to me Record high, stocks, Dead Solomani, Weinstein off to prison. Summer full of protests, war, wildfire, five stupid memes. Big declining market, three new judges, and no more impeachment, and a brand new coronavirus. On the 11th day of Christmas, America gave to us Joey Biden, record high stock. Dead Soleimani, Weinstein, off to prison, Summer full of protests, more wildfires. Five stupid memes. Big declining market, three new judges and no more impeachment. than a brand new coronavirus. On the twelfth day of Christmas, free markets gave to us... Virus vaccine, Uncle Joey, Vipe, record high, stock, dead Solomon, Weinstein off to prison, summer full of protests, more wildfire, five stupid memes, big declining market, three new judges, and no more impeachment, and a brand new coronavirus.
0: Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all.